Hello. We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Good evening. It's good to see you all tonight. Uh, We're going to continue our series in the book of Mark this evening. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, uh, we're going to be in verses 21 through 43. uh, Before we jump into Mark 5, I just want to recap a little bit of uh, what we did last week. So last week we looked at the beginning of Mark chapter 5 where uh, Jesus encounters this demoniac man uh, in the country of the Gerasenes, right? Um, so the disciples and him are going across the, across the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. Um, it's dark, and they get over to the other side of the shore where uh, this is the land of the Gentiles. This is uh, the land where uh, they would have thought death is very prevalent here. They even uh, show up on the shore, and there's this man who comes out of a graveyard, and he has a demon, and, and Jesus delivers this man. And so he delivers him from his uncleanness. He delivers him uh, out of all these things that were associated with death. And then tonight, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that just as Jesus is Lord over the unclean, he is Lord over death itself. Um, And so with that said, let's let's jump into uh, Mark 5. Um, And as we do, I want to uh, I want you to keep in mind two things. So um, typically uh, when we when we struggle with coming to Jesus and submitting our lives to him, uh, typically it's for one of two reasons. Uh, One is that maybe we're afraid to come to God because uh, we think that something in our past is so bad, so terrible, uh, we feel ashamed, we feel guilty and unclean, and we don't feel like God would want anything to do with us. And so uh, we struggle to come to him uh, because of the things in our past. Or, or maybe uh, it's, it's the other reason uh, for you. Maybe it's that uh, you feel like you know, life's going really well right now. Um, you've got a great job, great family, family. things are going well. Um, you don't have a lot of trouble happening in your life right now. You think things are going great, and you're not really sure why you would even need this Jesus. Um, and so uh, we typically have these, these two almost opposing ideas, these two types of people who won't come to Jesus for different reasons. Um, and in, in this one chapter, uh, we're going to see both of these types of people come to the Lord Jesus and uh, experience the blessing of knowing him. And so let's jump into Mark 5, starting in verse 21. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit, and then we're going to talk about it, and read a little bit and talk about it, because uh, it's a bit of a long section, so we won't read through it all and then go through it again. But So verse 21, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So let's just talk about that first little section there for a minute. Um, So as we noted, uh, the... 
They've come back across the sea, uh, right back to the land uh, where it was Jewish people were much more prevalent. Um, and so they're coming back over. They've just come from the country of the Gentiles and the Gerasenes, and they've seen uh, things that are very closely associated with death. Um, and they're coming back to their own, uh, you know, hometowns, and they're getting there. And then, um, what confronts them right when they get there? Death. And so they, they went to the land of the Gentiles and they saw death. And then they come back home and they see death again. And, and so the, the lesson we see here is that death is everywhere. There's no escaping it. Death is everywhere. It's, it's amongst those who believe. It's amongst those who don't believe. Um, death is everywhere because sin is everywhere. And sin is the human problem, right? Um, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and, and death is the wages of sin. And so um, even those who uh, have uh, lived religious lives, who, even those who have genuinely trusted in God, um, even they are afflicted by this human problem um, in the midst of this broken and fallen world. And so uh, Jesus and his disciples are coming back to their own land, and even there they're seeing that death is everywhere uh, because sin is everywhere. And and so then they get there, and uh, the other thing I want you to notice in verse 22 uh, with, with Jairus. So Jairus is going to be one of the main characters here in this little section, um, and I want you to notice some things about him. Um, and here's, here's the first thing I want you to get from looking at who Jairus is and what Jairus is going through, um, is that life often forces people who think they have it all together to realize that they don't. Life often forces people who think that they have it all to realize that they don't have the one thing they actually need. And, and so Jairus is this, is this ruler of the synagogue, right? He's a man well-respected in his community. Um, he's probably a decently wealthy man as well. So he's one of, um, one of seven leaders in his community, one of three that uh, had some direct responsibilities at the synagogue. And, you know, he would have been like a lay leader. Um, you know, if, if we're thinking kind of in our church world, like a lay leader who's really respected, who has keys to the building, and like he's in charge of a lot of stuff, and really, really people respect him. Um, he's a moral man. He's a great man that lots of people know, has lots of friends, um, and he's financially secure, and he's well-respected, and, and he comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet. Um, it, and and some, of the, some of the commentators note that uh, that name Jairus. So you'll notice that Jairus is named, and then later we're going to see that this other character in the story is not named. Um, and there's a contrast there. And Jairus' name, some of the commentators think, uh, could mean that he awakens or he sees. And so it's like the lights are just turned on for Jairus. So he's, he's, he's lived a moral life, a religious life. He's dedicated his life to God, to serving in the synagogue, uh, to serving his community, and things are going well for him. And then all of a sudden, life hits, and, uh, and, or rather, death hits his own home, his daughter, um, this daughter whom he loves. And, and she's sick, and she's at the point of death. And, and so Jairus comes to Jesus, which is completely unexpected, right? because he's a ruler of a synagogue. And so if you've, if you've looked at the Gospels so far, at the Gospel of Mark specifically, um, as well as you see it throughout all the Gospels, that um, some of the religious leaders were not too fond of Jesus and the sort of things that he was doing, the uh, commotion that he was stirring up by his miracles and his preaching. Um, they were not happy with him. And so, um, 
And, and next week, um, we're going to look a little bit about how prophets were rejected in their own hometowns, right, by their own people. And so, um, and so Jesus has largely been rejected by this group of people from which Jairus comes. And Jairus comes to this man, and he kneels before him. He falls before him. Um, and and he's, he's begging him to do something for him. It says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And then look at what Jesus does. Verse 24 says, and he went with him. And so here's this man who comes to Jesus who, um, if, if this had not happened in his life, would need nothing from Jesus, right? He's, he's a man who's well-respected in his community. He's, uh, he's serving God in his synagogue. He's, uh, he's got lots of friends. He's well-off. Um, and he, by worldly standards, he needs nothing. And he doesn't understand his need of Jesus until this happens, until suffering and tragedy strike his life. And, and when it does, he knows that despite his wealth, despite his connections, despite his standing in the community, uh, despite everything that he has going well for him, he doesn't have the one thing that he needs to help his daughter. And so he comes to Jesus begging him, and Jesus goes with the man. And so we see that Jesus is, is willing uh, to respond to humble faith. And and then look at this next little story here, because, and it says, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And so, and so they're excited to see Jesus do this, right? They've heard about the things that Jesus has been doing. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been preaching and teaching in a way that they thought was completely different um, than they'd heard before, because it was. And and so this great crowd is following him and wanting to see what he's going to do next. And. And so he's on the way, he's going with Jairus, and you've got to imagine that Jairus is probably really antsy and really wanting to hurry and, and get home so that this, this healer, this teacher, this man can help his daughter um, who's dying at home. And so he's like, let's go. And, and then it says, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, and be healed of your disease. And so Jesus is, is on his way to heal this man's daughter, and he gets interrupted. This, this woman reaches out in the midst of a crowd and, and touches his cloak, and he feels power go out from him to heal this woman. 
And instead of pressing on, because his, his situation here is time sensitive, right? He's, he's just heard that this, girl, this little girl is dying. Um, this little girl who, by the way, is 12 years old. Um, and then, uh, if you notice, Mark here says that this woman had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Um, and so he's on the way to heal this little girl who's dying, and he gets interrupted by this woman who's been suffering with this condition for 12 years. And, and I think it's, it's ironic and in, probably intentional that Mark points out that that 12-year thing is in common right there, right? And so this woman has been suffering for literally the length of this other little girl's life with this problem. And so let's look at this woman and, and learn a little bit about her because it's really important to see some of the things that Jesus is doing here. Um, and so, so as we, as we look at this, I want you to note that faith in Jesus saves us from death regardless of who we are. And so there's this nameless woman. Notice that when we talked about Jairus, he was named, right? He was a man well-respected in his community. And so in this narrative, he's, he's given a name. And, uh, and it would have communicated a level of respect for him. And then um, when we get to the woman in verse 25, it says, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood. The woman's not named. There's no name given for her. And it's because in, in her society, she was, she was not like Jairus in any way, shape, or form. Instead of being well-respected, she was an outcast. And, and not only was she an outcast, but she was a sufferer. She had been suffering for 12 years, as we noted, and, and she was unclean. And so why was she unclean? Let's, let's unpack that idea a little bit. Why, why was this woman unclean? I mean, there had been, she'd done nothing wrong, right? There wasn't any, she didn't wish this upon herself, this... This illness did not come upon her because of a sin she'd committed, um, but yet she has this chronic condition where she continues to bleed and can't stop, and, and she's considered unclean. So why? Well, look with me at Leviticus 15 and 17, real quick. Leviticus 15 and 17. So in Leviticus 15, starting in verse 25. It says, if a woman has a just discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge shall she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and shall be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, and bring them to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. What the heck is up with that? So we go to the New Testament and, and we read stories like this and, 
And if we don't stop to think about it, um, we just keep reading, right? We just keep, we're like, oh, that's nice that Jesus had some compassion on this woman and healed her, and then he kind of moved on with his day and healed this other girl. And we just keep reading. But if we go to Leviticus, where we read about these things, it makes us stop and think, like, what the heck is happening? Um, like I said, this, this woman hadn't brought this on herself. Um, she had had not sinned in some way in which uh, to deserve this specific uh, punishment, um, and, and yet she's still considered unclean under the law, right? And so she's considered unclean, as Leviticus 15 said, um, every day that this continues to happen to her. She continues in uncleanness, and, and to be unclean was to be unfit to be in the presence of God. And so she can't worship. She can't worship with her family. She can't have intimate relations with her husband because she's unclean. And so this woman's life is devastating. She's an outcast. She is, uh, no one wants to touch her. She's considered untouchable. Um, if you were to touch her, you gotta bathe and then go through this cleansing ritual yourself. And so she's suffering and she's going through it. And, and then look at Leviticus 17 with me. And, and here's where we'll kind of understand why, why it is that she's considered unclean. In verse 11 it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And then look at verse 14. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. And then he's going to go on, Moses is going to keep talking about um, some of the implications for this, and this is why they didn't eat blood um, and things. Um, but it's important to see that um, in, in the Jewish mind, blood was associated directly with life. And so to be losing blood was to be losing life, and, and to be associated with death itself. And so the reason that this woman is considered unclean is because she's losing this, this fluid that in, in their minds, that was life. I mean, and, and so blood was precious. And, and she was continually losing it. And so she was associated with death, with the loss of life. And so she was rendered untouchable by her society. And I noticed that Jesus, instead of running away from this woman, when she touches him, he turns around to talk with her. And if that doesn't strike you as a radical thing to do, then it should. Um, because, like, like I noted earlier, um, to touch this woman would have been to make yourself unclean. And except with Jesus, whenever somebody unclean touches him, he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. And so this woman is an outcast. She's been suffering. And she comes to Jesus in, in bold, bold faith. And in this passage, her faith is the example. So the faith of this nameless woman is, is the example that, that Mark is wanting to show you. He's, she's coming to Jesus and she's just saying, even if I could just touch his coat, then I could be healed. And so she's heard about Jesus. She's heard about the things that he's been doing and she believes the story. She believes the testimonies. And she comes to this man knowing that though doctors had not been able to help her, um, though she had spent all of her money, she was dead broke, had nothing left, she knows that though life seemed completely hopeless for her, her hope was in this man. 
And she comes and she reaches out and touches him and she's healed. And Jesus loves it. He turns around and, and he begins talking with her. Um, and, and she's afraid, right? She knows how powerful this guy is and she just touched him and was healed. And she knows she's been healed, right? And she felt it, she realized what had happened and then this guy turns around to look at her and she's like, oh, I'm in trouble now. Um, and wouldn't you be afraid too? I mean, like, you'd been going through this for 12 years and with one little touch of a guy's coat, like it's gone. I mean, that's some significant power. And, and if you're not afraid of that, then um, you're not understanding it. <laughs> and, but, he, but he turns and look at what he says to her. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter. Jesus has just been asked to hurry it along and get to Jairus' home, this man well-respected by his community um, who held some pull to heal his daughter. And this woman who was nameless and untouchable touches him and is healed and he turns around and he calls her his daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And so we see this, this nameless woman exercise this bold faith. And then we see our compassionate Lord tell her that she's in relationship with him because of her faith. And, and you got to imagine that the, the disciples this whole time have just been thinking, like, what is he doing? What is he doing stopping? Like, did he not hear that this little girl is dying? I mean, like, this is a time-sensitive deal for us. we got to get going. And, and he stops, and he has this long conversation. And the reason we know it's this long conversation with this woman is because um, in verse 33, look at what she says. Um, it says that uh, she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So she, she told him her, her story, right? And, and then in verse 35, here's what we read. Uh, while he was still speaking with this woman... Uh, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And so Jesus has turned around and he stopped what he's doing. And he's been talking with this woman for a while. And he's been talking with her so long as to hear her story, to hear where she's come from, what she's done, um, why she's in this predicament, and then to hear, hear about what um, her faith in him has done for her. And then... And then this other girl, whom he was going to heal originally, dies. And so he's, he's had this long conversation with this nameless woman who nobody cared about. And this girl over here dies. And so if you were to, if Jesus was a doctor, he'd be getting sued, right? I mean, like, this is the opposite of triage. So you go into the emergency room, and like, if you've got two people sitting there, um, you've got somebody who's got a chronic condition, and then you've got somebody with an acute condition that needs to be dealt with right away, or they're going to pass out, they're going to die, um, they're going to lose a lot of blood, or uh, something's going to happen where they're not going to make it, then any sane and sound doctor is going to deal with that one first, right? So why doesn't Jesus go to Jairus's home, heal this girl who's dying, and then come back and take care of this woman who's, and talk with this woman who's been suffering for 12 years, and likely her condition isn't really going to change that much. That's madness, right? That's crazy. 
if you're thinking about things from a pragmatic, earthly, useful perspective, the way we would think about things, this doesn't make any sense. Jesus stops and has this long conversation with this woman and gets to know her. When anybody else would have been running to this little girl who was dying. And you gotta imagine that Jairus is just like freaking out at this point. You know, I mean, his, his friends come and they say, you know, why are you troubling this guy anymore? Why even bother? She's dead, it's, it's over. You have no hope left, man. And, and look at what Jesus says to him. But overhearing, and look at your footnote there in your Bible, it says, or ignoring. So Jesus hears what these guys are saying about this situation, about this terrible, terrible tragedy and circumstance in this man's life. And he completely ignores what they have to say. Though they're completely right. If, if, if this is any other person, they're completely right, aren't they? Your daughter's dead, dude. There's no point in getting this teacher guy to come even look at her because he's not going to be able to do anything. She's gone. And, and he, Jesus hears this and he completely ignores what they're saying. And Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. Can you imagine hearing that? Like, you just heard your daughter died. And, and this guy looks at you and says, do not fear, only believe. And you're like, believe in what? She's dead. She's gone. I came to you because I know that you'd been healing people. And like, she's gone now. She's dead. She can't be healed of this. And so Jesus looks at him and says, do not fear, only believe. And you've got to imagine that that was a really, really difficult thing to take and to believe when Jesus said this to this man. But here's the thing. Faith in Jesus delivers us from the fear of death regardless of how terrible the circumstances may seem. And it's, it's really, really tempting to, to be like these guys who came to this man and said, listen, you've got no hope left. Whenever things aren't going our way, whenever we lose a job, whenever um, a loved one gets sick, whenever we hear about the cancer diagnosis, whenever um, we are, are sure that someone is about to die. I, I remember um, two different times where me and Brittany, uh, we drove through the night back to my hometown, Columbia, Missouri. And we, we drove there because one time my stepdad, they told us he was going to be gone before we got there. Um, he, had, he had been starting um, some treatments for his cancer diagnosis and his immune system was weakened and uh, he caught a bug and it destroyed him. I mean, he was done for. And, and the doctors were telling people to say goodbye. And so we drove through the night. Um, and then the other time uh, we drove through the night for my uh, you know, 80-something-year-old grandma who has Alzheimer's and uh, she'd had a stroke and uh, they were saying, listen, you got to get here. She's going to be gone. And, and so we, we drove back on two different separate occasions, believing that somebody was going to die. And uh, all hope was lost, you know. Um, and when we got there with my stepdad, um, you know, we were praying the whole way, right? But thinking for sure we weren't even going to get to say goodbye. And that was really hard to wrestle with. And I, and I 
can't even imagine this man after he's just gotten this notice from his friends that his daughter's dead. Like, he's not going to get to say goodbye. He doesn't even have a shot. Um, and we got there, and he had made a miraculous recovery. The doctors couldn't even explain it. It made no sense whatsoever. And so we drove thinking both on both these occasions that somebody that we loved and cared for was going to be dead by the time we got there. And both times they weren't. The doctors couldn't make sense of it. It didn't make any logical sense whatsoever. And, and so I say that to say, like, a lot of times in life, there's some very, very grim circumstances. And when you look at it, it doesn't make any sense why there would be any hope in the world. And, and Jesus looks at people who are in those kinds of circumstances, and he says, do not fear. Only believe. But here's the thing. Sometimes the loved one dies, don't they? And God doesn't answer the prayer. And they don't come back. And so, you know, you read a story like this, and and then, well, let's just let's just read the rest of it, so you can see what happens. So he says, "Don't trouble him anymore." Uh, Jesus ignores him. Says, "Do not fear, only believe." And then it says in verse 37, "And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James." They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And you would too, right? I mean, it's, we know what death looks like because we've experienced it. We've seen people die. We've lost people that we love. And, and we know what it looks like. And so they're looking at this little girl who they cared about, and they're like, she's gone. And, and he comes, and he says something ridiculous to them. I mean, in their eyes, it's completely ridiculous. The child is not dead, but sleeping. And, and in the Bible, sleep is often this word that's associated with death, right? It's kind of like a, a, a better way to say it, you know, a, a kind of like when we say somebody passed away um, instead of somebody died. Um, and, and so Jesus is like, listen, she's only sleeping. Um, but the thing with this here is that uh, she is dead. And, but Jesus still says this, right? He says, the child is not dead but sleeping. And if, if this was all you had to read, if you didn't have the other two gospel accounts where the other two writers say for sure that she was dead, then you might be tempted to interpret that like, well, maybe she was actually just in a coma. Um, but the other two gospel writers say that she was dead. And so what Jesus is saying here is not that she was taking a nap. Um, but for Jesus, death is only a nap. Because of the kind of power that he has, death is a nap from which he can take you by the hand and raise you up. And, and that's exactly what he's going to do. He says, they laughed at him. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And so he, he says, everybody who is lacking faith here, get out. And he takes in the parents, and he takes in his three closest followers. And they go into this room, and Jesus is, is not allowing people who are being critically skeptical and laughing and, and saying these sorts of things to be in this room with him. He's going to do this miracle in front of this small group of people who 
are still, despite all the circumstances, hoping and believing in him. And so it says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And Tim Keller looks at this passage and he, and he says the, that we don't really grasp what he's, what he's doing here with this language. Why, you know, and why uh, they have that written out for you, Talitha kumi, and little girl, I say to you, arise. He says, you know, a, a better translation might even be, um, Honey, wake up. Much like uh, a parent going in in the morning to wake their child up and sitting on the edge of the bed and grabbing them by the hand and saying, sweetheart, it's time to get up. And Jesus comes in in the midst of tragedy and death itself. And he sits by this little girl and he grabs her hand and he says, honey, get up. And she does. (laughs) Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. And so this man, uh, who had every reason to be devastated, his daughter had just died, his friends were all telling him there was no hope. He continued to go with this man back to his home, into the room where his daughter's corpse was. And he watched as Jesus spoke life back into her, as Jesus touched her and not just cleansed her, but gave her life again. And immediately they were amazed. And so faith in Jesus delivers us from the fear of death regardless of how terrible the circumstances are, because Jesus is Lord, not just over the unclean, but over death itself. And so going back to our question earlier, though, as we end our time together, what about when we pray and bad things still happen? What about when we pray and we still lose the loved one? They still die. They still pass away. What about when tragedy still strikes and we don't know what to do? I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll read this passage. Because in this passage is where our hope is found. Verse 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him 
subjected to him who put all things in, subjected, in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So this passage says that our hope in the midst of tragedy is in the resurrection of Christ. When we look at what Jesus did for us on the cross, we see that he took upon himself our sin. He became unclean for us so that by his shed blood, we might be clean. And then after he dies, three days later, he raises from the grave, defeating death itself. And so as we pray and as, and, and as uh, God decides to heal sometimes and do miraculous things, and then other times we, we still see tragedy strike, and we're wondering what's going on, we look to the cross and to the resurrection to find our hope. Because notice it says that this resurrection, uh, that Christ has been raised from the dead, the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, it says the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so there's also a promised resurrection for those who trust in him. For those who believe in Christ and belong to him, there's a promised resurrection. There's the promise of beating death itself. And sometimes that doesn't make things easy. It doesn't make things easy. But it means that in the midst of sorrow, we still have hope. And so as you read about the miraculous, wonderful things that Jesus does in Mark's gospel, as you see the king of kings establishing a kingdom, and then you're looking at your own life and you're, and you're wondering what God is up to, you look to the end of the book. You look to the end of the book where Mark tells you about what Jesus has done for you on the cross and where he tells you of the resurrection from the dead. And then you look at Paul's letters and you see that because Christ is raised, we will be also. And all those who have fallen asleep in him. And so we trust him. Would you pray with me? Father, you know even better than we do that this life is often difficult. Your heart breaks even more than ours does for the tragedy that death is, what sin has brought upon our world. Lord, and you have compassion for us. And you don't stand far off, but you sent your son and you came to us in the midst of our grief and our sorrow, our pain, our tragedies. Lord, you are present for us. And we thank you for that tonight. We thank you that we can read in Mark about all that you've done, all that you've done for hurting and broken people. And Lord, we thank you that we can have hope because of what you've done here, because of what you've shown us in your word, we can have hope that life is not just this, this temporary healing that these individuals experienced, but, Lord, that true and eternal life is found in you. And so we ask that as life gets difficult, as tragedies come, as we go through grief and pain and sorrow, God, we ask that you would help us. 
Lord, that you would help us not to fear, but to believe, to believe in you. And Lord, so that's what we do now. In Jesus' mighty and awesome name, amen.